As you know, periodically I do um, a theme that I take over several weeks and I started a theme two weeks ago and if you weren't here, it won't make a difference. If you were here, I hope it makes a difference. <laughs> How's that for inclusiveness? <laughs> um, maybe to begin with a, a story I like written by Margaret Stevens. There was a man who died and found himself in a beautiful place, surrounded by every conceivable comfort. A white-jacketed man came to him and said, You may have anything you choose, any food, any pleasure, any kind of entertainment. The man was delighted, and for days he sampled all the delicacies and experiences of which he had dreamed on earth. But one day he grew bored with it all, and calling the attendant to him, he said, You know, I'm tired of all this. I need something to do. What kind of work can you give me? I'd like to give of myself, be of help somewhere. The attendant sadly shook his head and replied, I'm sorry, sir, that's the one thing we can't do for you. There is no work for you here. To which the man answered, that's a fine thing. I might as well be in hell. The attendant said softly, where do you think you are? So for some you might have anticipated it, um, that we know it in our lives, that we can keep on getting what we think we want, you know, any conceivable comfort. It doesn't matter. The car, the relationship we think we want, you know, whatever financially, whatever materially, the house, the vacation, and yet, as it's in the Corinthians so clearly, our life is empty like a clanging cymbal if we don't have love. It just doesn't matter what else we think we want to get. If there's not a quality of genuine intimacy with our inner life and with others, empty clanging cymbals, such a great kind of image and sound. So two weeks ago I, I started to speak about love and about empathy and really kind of framed it a bit as an evolutionary capacity, you know, it's hardwired. And really as, as the ground of our path is, uh, is a realizing that that loving awareness really is our source. And, and the word realizing is a really important word because it's not like we're trying to attain or achieve or get to loving presence. And if we have it conceptualized that way, that we're not there, that something's missing, that we're not pure, that it's not in us, we are forever going to be chasing after something and leaving the one place it is. So the word realizing means to recognize or remember what's already here. And the only problem is that we've been forgetting. We haven't been recognizing what we are. So it's a homecoming. That, that word works for me. There's some sense of it's home because that's where we feel the most true, the most right, it's most what we are when we're living in a place of feeling tender and open and caring. Tonight I'd like to really 
kind of explore four elements of that homecoming. And the first, and this is the beginning of really all waking up, is recognizing how we leave the trance. How is it, and this is the basic question, how do we stop love? How do we live in a way that we, that it's obscured, that we don't, we're not able to feel it? I know that's one of my inquiries, that um, I can conceptually or abstractly know all about love, and yet what I cherish is when there's a visceral experience. What stops that? How do we get caught off track? That's part one. The second is when you realize the trance, when you realize that separation, there is an upwelling of intention. We care. We want to come home. That's the second part. The third part is that out of that caring, we begin to practice in a way to decondition all our habits of, of avoiding intimacy. We take the chance. It's a, it's a, it, those are courageous actions. We play our edge. And then the last part is the deepest liberation, the real realizing, comes from what sometimes I call radical presence, which is absolutely loving what is. Absolutely this. Unless we can love this, we're not going to be in love with our life. So I'll just take a little time with each one of those pieces. So the first part is recognizing the trance, which is a lot... I mean, when we come here, when we come to get quiet and listen, it's because something in us intuits that we haven't been listening. Something in us intuits that we have been off, you know, following a lot of thoughts off in kind of reactive behaviors, that we've been living a bit in a story of not okayness. We kind of know that. So we come to get quiet so we can come home in some way. And and it's because we begin to see how we're living and it doesn't feel aligned with what matters. And it's really that we're sensing the pain of separation. That when we are not at home, when we're not awake, uh, we feel a sense of cut-offness that hurts. And sometimes the way it presents itself is anger. We feel oppressed by how it is. Sometimes it's fear. It's like really scary because we feel separate and we feel like around the corner we're going to be in some way annihilated or rejected or something. Sometimes it comes as grief. There's a sense of loss, like our life isn't working out and what matters is gone, gone, gone. And when we get quieter and quieter, it comes as what I call soul sadness. Where there's just, it's very pure, just the sense of intuiting the possibility of loving without holding back and of being awake and here, not having our moments... Um, scattered. We intuit that. And there's just a very pure sorrow. It's not like a sorrow that's saying, oh, I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm ineffective. It's just sorrow that senses in a kind of soulful way that we're not living from home. 
So we begin to look and start, and each of us has our patterns of leaving home. Each of us does. And we know them, and sometimes we know them and we're angry at ourselves for them, and sometimes there's a knowing and a deep forgiving. But becoming familiar with them is key, because if we're not, we're just living in a dream. So what are they? What are the basic ways we leave? And for some there's kind of this addictive grasping of trying to get more, to prove ourselves more. It's got a kind of consumptive quality. Sometimes we try into more food or more recognition. Or sometimes we shift, we, we want more of one thing and as soon as we have some of that we flip to the next object. And you can see it clearly from alcohol to you know, cigarettes to caffeine. But they're more subtle with our relationships. We'll shift what we are fixating on different people to get from them. I love this. Uh, this is Rita Rudner. She says, I love to shop after a bad relationship. I don't know. I buy a new outfit and it makes me feel better. It just does. Sometimes if I see a really great outfit, I'll break up with someone on purpose. <laughs> so there's this chasing after that we do. And it starts feeling hollow. Because anyone that knows addiction knows it never works. It's like drinking salt water to quench thirst. So I could give a whole talk just on that for the rest of the year. But that's one of the ways we leave. Another is we see how much our life moments are consumed by judgment. In other words, the way we leave is to say, I don't like this moment, or I don't like this self, or I don't like this person. And there's a pushing away. There's a competing, there's a sense of being at war. Um, Some of you will remember, this is one of my favorite examples, of 11 people that are hanging tight to a rope that's dangling from a helicopter. Ten are men, one is a woman. Agreed that somebody needed to drop off or the rope would break. They'd all be killed. So after much back and forth, the woman finally said, okay, I'll be the one to do it. And she went on to say, this is what women do. They sacrifice themselves for the well-being of others. They do what they can to ensure others are taken care of. They give, 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 give. And when she was done, all the men started clapping. (laughs) Forgive it if if that has um, kind of blind gender implications. But the idea is when we are caught in the belief of self and other, Either we're constantly grabbing to build up and enhance this selfness or we're constantly protecting and fighting and pushing away others, our parts of ourself. And we can see how we do it on a lot of different levels. We can see how we do it culturally. When there's this basic sense of, of separateness and fear, then we can see in a kind of societal way how we try to get identified with those that are the best, the most important, the groups in power, and how there's a need to feel we're the right ones, the okay ones, the ones on top, and to push others away and push others down. We can see how this fuels the, the discrimination and marginalization of peoples, We do it to ourselves in a personal way. We do it societally. It's the source of war. We create others. And if there's an other, an unreal other is what I call it, then we can hurt them because the empathy has shut down. We don't sense they, like us, feel 
and care and want to be loved and want to be free. So this is how we go in trance. We create others and others as enemies. The basic way we go into trance, we all have core beliefs that are day by day, moment by moment, informing our reality, creating our reality. And this is, the, this is how the forgetting happens. We have a core belief, I'm a self, I'm a limited self, something's wrong or missing with me, something's wrong or missing with you, I need to be different, you need to be different. I heard a story about one man who was very, very sick and when he really got in touch with his core beliefs it was that in some way he had the belief that life was supposed to be different. And his body was in constant agitation about it and when it was he really saw that and he kept asking himself the question, is that really true? Does it have to be different? Is it supposed to be different? Is it really true? And when he finally deeply inquired, there was a letting go, and he healed. We have beliefs that make us sick and make us unhappy and make us suffer. So what happens is the belief might be, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and it sets off a kind of obsessive thoughts that swirl around it, and then it sets off actions that are in response to it, like judging and hurting and pushing away or grasping on. And the more we do it, the more we actually recreate the very experience that's so painful to us. We recreate it. This is uh, Gandhi. Your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your character. Your character becomes your destiny. So that feels really important. That this is the this is what the Buddha described as the papancha, the proliferation. That we have these core beliefs, and unless we challenge them and wake up out of them, a belief like something's wrong with me or there's a problem. Unless we wake out of, up out of them, they generate thoughts that generate how we speak, how we act, and solidify us. It's our destiny. We keep on recreating our karma. And how many of us have noticed that we're still doing the same kind of behaviors and relationships now that we were doing X number of years ago? It's because the same beliefs are operative. So when we begin to see this, we begin to see the pattern, the chain that we're running, we start sensing how it has really hijacked our life, how we long for love and yet how many moments of the day are we spending judging? Are we long to really feel free and happy and yet how many moments of the day are we hitched to some addictive behavior that really keeps us small and tight and ashamed? Are we long for peace? And yet how many moments of the day are we hooked on this idea we have to do one more thing to be okay? We start to see it. That's part one. When we see it, 
there is a natural caring. It's like a feeling of awe. We care about waking up and it hurts. So that's where intention comes in. That's what brings us to practice. That's what brings us to service, that we have this intention to start cutting through that conditioning of a separate self. I love uh, this by Rilke. He says, I want to unfold. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. No place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. So this is the heart's intention, that we know that when we're in trance we're not open. The busier we are, the less open we are. The more that we're pursuing the wants to prove ourselves, to self-aggrandize, the more we're pursuing our protections, the more we're believing our beliefs about not okayness, the more we're closed. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. So this is intention. So I watch myself, you know, go through my, you know, when I start noticing how the trance is, is affecting my life. And for me, there's, you know, we each have situations that aggravate. For me, when I'm not feeling well, I get kind of aversive and self-protective and then I'm, then I'm kind of, you know, like really uh, defended against any demands on my time and kind of armored. Or else when I start feeling well, I get busy and I'm so eager to get things done, then I'm ar- armored. And then what will happen is I'll feel, oh, I'm not feeling close. I mean, that's the kind of... It's almost like I'm not really feeling close with people. And that's kind of sets off this whole sense of pain of separation because that's what most matters. You know, what most matters is feeling in love. Loving presence, awake love. So what I'll do is I'll pray to feel more open. Just different words than Rilke. In fact, I'll share one of the verses that goes through my mind a lot as this kind of prayer when I feel the pain of separation is from the poet Hafiz. And he says, ask the friend for love. He says, ask the friend for love. Ask him again. For I have learned that every heart will get what it prays for most. Ask the friend for love. Ask him again. For I have learned that every heart will get what it prays for most. So if what's going on is we have the belief of something wrong, not enough, and our wants are all fixated on being a better person or getting another's approval, that's what our heart's kind of going at. And we might shine ourselves up some and look better. But the real transformation, 
the real awakening is this is realizing what's already here, the love that's here. So when I find myself praying for love, what it does is immediately I start softening because I start getting sincere. And as soon as I start getting sincere, I'm already there. You know, sincerity is the deal. As soon as we pray with sincerity, we come right back to a tenderness. So the very thing we were praying for is here and just by inhabiting the prayer we come home. It's like John O'Donohue put it wonderfully. He says, prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. So this is part two, intention. We feel the pain of separation, that question of, you know, how come I'm not feeling loved? How come I'm not feeling loving? which I'm sure many have kind of been inquiring into. And then we really sense how, how we get imprisoned and there's this pain of separation and then there's that, that intention, that prayerfulness. What that leads to is what we might call an intentional kind of cultivating of the heart. We begin to practice. We practice meditation because what does that do? If we get quiet if we quiet down the buzz of the thoughts, we're really cutting through that conditioning, the thoughts that move into the words, that move into the behaviors. We stop recreating our life. We actually open to a silence that really connects us with our heart. So part of meditation is just quiet down some, slow down some. I was... uh, I heard many, maybe five, six years ago about some research about quantum physics where they've been cooling down atoms and, they more, and if they really cool them down a lot they slow down tremendously. And um, this is not new. This is, again, as I say, it's been out for a while. But what happens when atoms slow down dramatically is that their property changes radically and they lose any distinguishing separateness and become part of a unified field. It's called a singularity. Now that's really interesting to me. And I I love the parallels not because they say, oh, okay, the mystics are right, but because it makes sense that every level of this reality would in some way be a metaphor for the truth that we can't say with words. So we slow down and we quiet down and get outside the busy thoughts and we touch what is numinous. We touch that oneness. So we meditate. There's other practices that are very active that help us cut through the conditioning and I think forgiveness is one of the big ones one of our deepest habits that keeps on perpetuating a sense of a separate self that in some way is better than or worse than but in some way apart is that we're judging and we're judging ourselves and we're judging each other and we judge in ways that are conscious and then we have these unconscious judgments where we see someone and they seem different and in some way we make assumptions that make them less than that humanness and awareness and love that is really who's looking through. So how to cut through the judgment? It takes a commitment. 
I know for myself one of the most powerful practices I have now is that whenever I catch myself judging there's this kind of sense of well, I can either be right and believe in my judgments or I can move towards freedom. And to just stop the story and feel the vulnerability under the judgment. There's always some vulnerability under the judgment. So there's forgiving. And then there's the act of loving-kindness practice, which many of you are familiar with, some of you might not be. And in that, we intentionally look towards the goodness. Now our habit is we scan for what's wrong. So with loving-kindness, it's not like we're being Pollyanna-ish. It's like we're widening the field, we're remembering the beauty, the, the wisdom and the sweetness and the generosity that's here. And the practice has got these two parts of seeing the goodness and then offering wishes of well-being. And it doesn't even matter if it's mechanical wishes. If you're sincere in your heart, if you want to wake up your heart, just the practice of offering wishes of well-being to others helps to bring us back home to what's true. I heard a story um, a couple of years ago about a meditation that was take, took place in this urban area and after a certain amount of training in metta, loving-kindness, everybody was sent out on the streets to go and pick someone and just practice. You know, just pick someone on the streets and just start sending loving-kindness. And this uh, took the retreat place was near an Amtrak station. So for a number of people, they were hanging out in the train station, you know, sending metta. So I want to read you a piece of this. When a train pulled in, one woman from the class noticed a man disembark and decided to make him the recipient of her loving-kindness meditation. Silently, she began reciting the phrases for him. Almost immediately, she began judging herself. I must not be doing it right because I feel so distant. I don't have a great wash of warm feelings coming over me. Nonetheless, reaffirming her intention to look on all beings with kindness, to see the goodness, instead of estrangement, she continued reciting, May you be happy. May you be peaceful. Taking another look at the man who was dressed in a suit and tie and seemed nervous, she began judging him. He looked so rigid and uptight and judged herself. Here I am trying to send loving kindness to someone and instead I'm disparaging him. Still, she continued repeating the phrases, aligning her energy with her deep intention to be a force of love in the world. At the moment, at that moment, the man walked over to her and said, you know, I've never done anything like this before in my life, but I'd like to ask you to pray for me. I am about to face a very difficult situation in my life you somehow seem to have a really loving heart and I'd just like to know that you're praying for me. Even when it seems mechanical, just having the intention to see the humanity and to offer care brings us back home to our natural loving. It's not like we're developing it, it's like we're remembering it. Now one of the beautiful parts of loving-kindness practice is called dana, or giving, which is, this is the element of, in some way we're giving our prayer, 
we can also, out of love and appreciation, give our money, our time, our energy. It's the exact same effect. If our conditioning is to think, I'm separate, I need to hold this for myself, um, I, don't, I can't afford, you know, I'm going to be losing, then we sit with that. If we practice giving, giving our energy, our time, it frees us up, it reconnects us with a kind of boundlessness and a sense of belonging which is totally sweet, totally sweet. So it's like that story of that man who was in hell. It's like, as much as we keep accumulating, it doesn't give the deepest pleasure. Because the deepest pleasure is if I asked you to think of a moment where you really gave something to someone and really sensed them getting something and receiving, that's where happiness comes in. might want to just... Take a moment, let's reflect in this way. Just to, just to kind of tune in. And the way we tune in to any of these heart practices is to first just sense with sincerity that there's a intention in your heart to really be at home and in love, to live from love. that even if you feel numb right now or tight or distracted, it doesn't matter. Just, just to sense the intentions there. That we care about caring. And you might even, as I told you the words earlier, ask the friend for love. The friend is some expression of the divine the gods or goddesses or Buddhas and it's really your own highest awareness ask the friend for love ask him again for I have found that every heart will get what it prays for most and then let yourself bring to mind someone that's dear to you that you care about And take some moments, and this is so sweet, just to reflect on what's good about them. And when I say that, they're real goodness. See the light in their eyes. Maybe imagine what it's like when they're laughing. Genuinely amused. Or maybe touched by beauty. Or soft in a kind of loving way are just happy, seeing them happy. And let let that in, just a sense of, ah, the goodness of this person. And imagine that you're letting them know what you see that in some way you're being a mirror and, and just letting them know how dear they are, how good they are. And just sense their pleasure in feeling your love and appreciation.
everybody needs to be reminded and really, really flowers when they're reminded. So you're giving them the blessing of reminding them of their goodness. And just sense your heart's prayer for that person. Now may you really accept yourself just as you are. May you trust your beauty and goodness. May you be peaceful, really peaceful, relaxed, at ease. May you be free. So that you can sense as you offer your care Just kind of look back into your own awareness and sense who are you when you are giving in this way, when you're caring and expressing care. What's your sense of your own being? I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. When you're ready, opening your eyes. Okay, so we've explored a bit of recognizing the trance, how we cut off, chase after things, protect ourselves, basically believe beliefs about a not-okay self, how we stay closed. And then how that pain of separation gets us more intentional. It's like awareness wants to realize itself. Loving awareness wants to realize itself through these body-minds. So there's this intentionality to wake up. And then we begin to direct our attention in ways that help us to kind of cut through the conditioning where we don't believe our judgments so much. We're kind of not willing to keep believing our judgments so much. Where we, where we become really uh, wanting to see the good and where we start practicing giving, even when our habit is not to, because when we start offering our care, it feels good, not because we're being virtuous. It doesn't have to do with acting right. It feels good because we're more at home in who we are. So now I'd like to go to the fourth part, which is what I call radical presence. And if we really ask, well, What's stopping me from feeling love? And we really look. What is stopping me from feeling love? And we really look. It's because we're not connected with our own self. In any moment, if we're not feeling love, we're disconnected from the life that's right here. And the only way home, ultimately, is to bring presence to the life that's here. And I call that loving what is because love is the most... Any time we're really present, love is there. 
I mean, unconditional presence, there's love. So I'll give you an example of a woman that I was working with um, when I taught at Omega last summer. I teach a weekend on radical acceptance and she came because she felt like her relationships were in shambles and she had uh, just entered, she was just entering a new relationship that really mattered to her a lot. This is a lesbian woman and this was a relationship she really felt had potential and she could already see the same pattern. And the same pattern was that she had with her children and with others, which was that in some way she was getting really suspicious, mistrustful, and in some way assuming that she was going to be left. And so we did the practice that we do here so often as I, you know, I had her name the story and what she was believing. You know, because I asked that question a lot, well, what are you really believing? And the bottom line belief is that how I am is not going to be lovable. It's just not going to be lovable. And I invited her to feel how that was living in her body. And it was... And to drop the story of it, of how it was playing out, and really, how does that live in your body? And she had her breathe with it. And as many of you know, I often will invite people to bring their hand to their heart or their cheek or their belly because really deep presence, kind presence with what's here. And it was only when she she had a few rounds of saying, I don't deserve to be loved, it's going to happen again, I have to change to be okay. I have to change if I'm ever going to have a relationship work. And then, is that true? She had always lived with an idea that it couldn't work unless she was different. And that's when she got to uh, that place I sometimes call ouch, which is that sense of all her life her moments had been hijacked by a sense of how it is, how I am is not okay. She had never been able to relax. Never able to be intimate, really. Because how it is now, how I am is not okay. She's... this position of hand on heart, the deepest communication she could give to herself was, it's totally okay how it is. This life, this being is okay. That was her way of saying what I sometimes describe as, I'm sorry, I love you, like really deep compassion. As soon as she said, it's really okay, I don't have to change, space opened up. Tenderness, space, love. And I heard from her some months later, because she came to a day long I did in New York, and she said that she was living now the most intimate relationship of her life because she started naming that same vulnerability with her partner and they together held presence. It was the first time she was able to be real with someone else because she was really able to reconnect with herself. When we're not feeling love, it's never the other person's fault. That doesn't mean the other person's not acting like a nutcase, but it's not their fault. It's always that we're disconnected from ourselves and always, at least part of the process, if we're not feeling love, is to come back home into loving what is right in this body, heart and mind. 
the fruit of this practice, of this homecoming, of loving what is, is we realize that that is what we are. The love is what we are. The awareness is what we are. That we're not trying to be different, not because that was just a belief, but because the truth is, it's by inhabiting who we are that we really flower. We don't have to be different. There is a description of a spiritual path that I find really helpful. And it is that one part is realization, starting to get those glimmers that, that our deepest nature is awareness and is love. The second part is called stabilization, or familiarizing, which means that we more and more come to sense that's the truth, that's more true than our small self story. doesn't mean the neurotic stuff doesn't keep running through, it's just we don't believe it so much as me. Okay? Stabilizing. That more and more we know what we are. The third part, embodiment. Embodiment. And that means that our words, our actions express directly that care. And it can come after many years of practice, but it's also innate. It's who we are. So I'd like to share a story that um, I love. Uh, that kind of shows this, and it takes place in Brooklyn, New York. Shush is a school that caters to learning disabled children. Some children remain in Shush for their entire school career, while others can be mainstreamed into conventional schools. And at one fundraising dinner, a father of one of the children delivered a speech, and I want to just tell you a little bit about that. And he said, he, he, he extolled the school and its staff, and he said, where is the perfection in my son Shia? Everything God does is done with perfection, but my child cannot understand things as other children do. My child cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? And the audience was shocked by, by this kind of query, but then here's what he went on to say. He said, I believe that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way that people react to this child. And then he told the following story. He said, one afternoon he and his son Shia walked past a park where some boys Shia knew were playing baseball. Shia asked, do you think they'll let me play? His father knew that his son was not at all athletic and that most boys would not want him on their team. But Shia's father understood that if his son was chosen to play, it would give him a sense of belonging. His father approached one of the boys on the field and asked if Shia could play. The boy looked around for guidance from his teammates. Getting none, he took matters into his own hands and said, We're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth inning. Shia's father was ecstatic and Shia smiled broadly. Shia was told to put the glove on and go out to the play in the center field. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shia's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shia's team scored again and now had two outs and bases loaded with the potential winning run on base. Shia was scheduled to be up. Would the team actually let him bat at this juncture and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shia was given the bat. Everyone knew it was all but impossible because Shia didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit it, hit with it. However, as he stepped up to the plate, the pitcher moved a few steps to lob the ball in softly so Shia could at least be able to make contact. The first pitch came in and Shia swung clumsily and missed. 
One of Shia's teammates came up to Shia and together they held the bat and faced the pitcher waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly to Shia. As the pitch came in, Shia and his teammates swung at the bat and together they hit a slow ground ball to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the soft grounder and could easily have thrown the ball to first baseman. Shia would have been out and that would have ended things. Instead, the pitcher took the ball and threw it on a high arc to right field far beyond the reach of the first baseman. Everyone started yelling, Shia, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shia run to first. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. By the time he reached first base, the right fielder had the ball. Now he could have thrown the ball to the second baseman who would tag out Shia, who was still running. But the right fielder understood what the pitcher's intentions were, so he threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Everyone yelled even more, run to second, run to second. Shia ran towards second base as the runners ahead of him deliriously circled the bases towards home. As Shia reached second base, the opposing shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base, and shouted, run to third. As Shia rounded third, the boys from both teams ran behind him, screaming, Shia, run home. Shia ran home, stepped on home plate, and all 18 boys lifted him on their shoulders and made him the hero as he had just hit a grand slam and won the game for his team. That day, said the father softly with tears now rolling down his face, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. It is part of our nature. It's the deepest part of our nature to know our belonging and to want to live for and serve that. It's when we're happiest and it's when we're most free. And it doesn't mean we don't have tremendous strong conditioning to be out for moi and to be hostile and to make war and to cause havoc on the planet. That's there. But the the hope and the beauty of the path is that we see that, we feel the pain of that because it doesn't feel good. And that creates that longing that really has us reach towards love, that we ask the friend for love. And that sometimes it takes a real commitment to stay present. Other times there's this natural outflowing as we can see with children who are naturally can be empathetic and as we can see in a moment when someone's just touched by another and that, that field of togetherness is so apparent. So let's, let's just take a few moments of quietness together. Let this kind of pause be a coming home to the moment, coming home to your heart. What does it mean to love what is in this moment?
what does it really mean to love what is right here? Listen to and feel the life that's within us with a tender affection. And to sense the space of the room and the sounds around us and just to include in this heart those that are here. to sense how really life, the whole world, lives in these hearts. Holding with tenderness this life. That all beings might realize the loving awareness that's their nature. And that all beings might live from that. That there might be peace on earth and peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.